What's up, y'all? It's Zach. We live in corporate. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We're now getting into we're heading into the summer. We're not in the summer yet. We're definitely still solidly in the spring. But the year continues forward. I hope that you're taking the time um, that you need to reflect and make sure that you're getting the most that you can out of your career. Right. Like and and when you say or you examine the idea of getting the most out of your career, that doesn't necessarily mean or associate with a dollar figure or with a title, but it's more so for me anyway, has been around, has been around and about <laughs> if I'm honoring my purpose and my values. Right. I think it feels like a lot of us, like we're conditioned to sideline our values, sideline our passions, sideline our be- our dreams, sideline our visions for this eventual payday. Right. So like we swallow a bunch of bull, bull we put up with a bunch of macro and microaggressions. To what extent, though? I don't know if we all we being black and brown people, particularly black people. I don't know if we always are. We're consistent in thinking about, OK, look, I'm taking this short. St- I'm taking this step as part of a larger dream and goal to honor my purpose, honor my vision, honor my dreams, honor my passions. That's important. That's important. Right. Like life is so short. It's interesting, right? Like I'm now in my early 30s. It's interesting to see people who are passing away who are also in their 30s or younger than me or just a little bit older. Right. Like life is so short. It's so fragile. If you're not living your dreams, some somebody will figure out a way for for you to work their dreams. Right. And like, that's OK. Right. If that's what you want to do. But I, I at least want to encourage everyone on who's listening to this podcast today give yourself the opportunity to live your own dreams but if you want to end up supporting someone else's that's fine but try to live your own too um look i'm really excited about this interview we have uh, with aubrey brown who's a an executive at junco uh, we'll be talking to him about a lot of different things i don't even want to like spoil it too hard i just want to get into the conversation all right so the next thing you're going to hear is a conversation between me and Aubrey might pay some bills in between that, but still, you're going to hear the conversation. I'll see you in a little bit. AB, Aubrey, Mr. Brown, A, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I just saw Creed 3 uh, last week, and it was absolutely incredible. Blew away my expectations. Michael B. Jordan still can't act, but you know Jonathan Majors did his thing. So that he was did good. his thing. Just this thing. Now, now you have a pretty great physique as well, right? Like, would you see yourself as an extra in a Creed movie? Would you see yourself yes. as a being in a? Okay, I got you. Oh no, but not in a Creed movie. I'm not trying to get hit. Okay, okay. I'm about to say, do you have but hands? Not- do you fight? Do you have hands? No, I do not fight. I'm a lover. <laughs> I'm a, if someone came to fight me, I'd just immediately give him a just hug. Just give him a hug. Just like disarm him. Soft, you know soft I mean? squeeze. No, I got it. L- look, I, I want to talk to you. Understand? Um, you ha- you've had a really you've had a really interesting journey. You know, like we're having this conversation in the wake of uh, continuous um, market correction, or shoot, just uh, recessionary fears, a bunch of other, fr- frankly, a, a, a concoction of, of things. As we look at tech and just seeing like people getting laid off left and right, people fleeing for the hills, uh, a lot of executives still staying and getting the golden parachutes. But I'm curious, like when I first engaged you, I remember when I, you were you were working at Airtable, like you were, and um, and I saw you as black tech influencer, brand product person, right? Like you're exi- like to me, you you exemplified a lot of the things that were really cool about and like alluring about working in tech as a black person, right? Like you seemed like you were, you were straddling these spaces between like go to, like go to market strategy and diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and now you've like, you've pivoted into a new opportunity at Junco. I mean, I really want to understand like your foray in the tech. Um, and then I'd like to get your perspective on, what you're seeing now as it pertains to just the the space as a whole, especially for black folks. I mean, I just want to kind of give you space to wax poetic because again, I, I count you as part of like, it's it's like, I'm not going to drop, I'm not going to drop other, other names, but 
I, when I think about you, I do see you in this space of like, again, like black creative personas, influencers in this tech space and not just influencer in this like really hollow surface sense, but you actually like, you have some knowledge, like you have, you've had exposure to different spaces and places in tech. Um, and, and again, like you're intersecting with DI. So anyway, I just want to, I'd like to just let you give you space to talk about your foray into this, into this world, uh, your observations as you continue to engage it. And then, um, and I'll give you that and I'll, I'll ask some more, but I really want to just give you space for that. Great. And when you say wax poetic, I'm going to self-limit myself to three minutes to this answer because you know I can talk. You know I can talk. Yeah, I like it. Day, but I appreciate that. I'll talk about my origin story and kind of what I've observed over the past, I guess, 12 years being in this industry. You know, I started in tech going to a coding boot camp. Um, you know, I have no degree. Uh, I had no way of... Uh, getting breaking into the technology space even though i was just you know, i grew up in oakland so i was just 15 minutes away from san francisco this tech growing tech hub back in what this was 2011. so i was just trying to break in i was trying to break in i tried to start my own app um i actually contracted a developer to a ruby developer to build an app for me and i was had this dream of being a billion dollar tech founder like it was easy like i just snap my fingers and make it happen after completely failing in that venture, which, you know, I wouldn't take back for the world, I decided that, you know, the only way to do the work was to learn how to code. And that would also be the only way to make some cheddar. Um, but, you know, with faced with, okay, what were the paths to get you there? The first path is to go to get a computer science degree. Um, and the second path, which I didn't find out about until I met up with a friend who had gone to one of these was going to go to a coding boot camp. And the difference between a coding boot camp and a, a computer science degree is about three and a half years in the sense that you can go to a coding boot camp. The dream was that you go to a coding boot camp and within three months, um, you learn how to build full stack applications and you get a job in the industry. Now, of course, it wasn't as easy as that, but I thought to myself, what other uh, pathway would take me from zero earning potential based off of my skills and my resume to making 100k outside of flipping bricks like young gc and you know coding boot camps ended up being that so i put all my eggs in that basket and thankfully it ended up working out for me um uh, within a year of deciding to become a software engineer, I was working at a company as a software engineer, making a hundred racks, which was an absolute blessing. Um, and my observation back then was, wow, I'm very, very lucky to get to where I am today based off of where I was a year ago. And the tech industry kind of saved me in terms of at least giving me a skill that I could sell and, you know, make money from outside of entrepreneurship. Um, what I also, my philosophy also back then, what I observed was that there was still definitely not enough black people in the industry. And while coding boot camps offered an alternative that could appeal to folks who don't have a ton of time and a ton of, maybe a ton of resources to foray into tech, um, it still didn't have the exposure that it needed to really show someone that, you know, from, you know, uh, a community maybe where being a software engineer wasn't as prevalent that they could do it. And I'll give you a great example. I came back from um, well, the company I was working for on like a Thursday night, three months in, and I went to go meet up with four homies who we used to have a poker night. And I came back with hella snacks from the office. And they were like, I pulled all these snacks out, you know, basically like created like a, uh, a tech snack charcuterie board. And they're like, where are all these snacks from? And I'm like, from work. They're like, oh, well, you know, let, let me give you a Let me give you some money so that we can pay for them. And I'm like, these were free. What do you mean pay for them? These were absolutely free. These were going to go bad over the weekend if no one took them. And they were like, what do you mean they were free? So we, this was this entire kind of like microcosm of the cognitive dissonance between what was happening in the East Bay and what was happening just 15 minutes away in San Francisco. And that didn't just stop with the snacks. The snacks were the tip of the iceberg. Going deeper was, you know, what is the tech industry anyway? What type of roles can you get? What type of um, financial 
um, how financially can getting into tech change your life? And thankfully, I was able to do it, but I could not stand by while folks in my community who were way more talented than I was, you know, way had gone to be like one or, you know, top 10% of whatever sport or, um, you know, academic uh, uh, academic feat that they wanted to get, uh, wanted to do. They're way more talented than I did. I was like, I want to build something for them. So I ended up in starting a coding bootcamp specifically geared towards women and people of color, um, called Telegraph Academy. And that was my foray into, um, the intersection of tech, uh, diversity and really helping companies, you know, open themselves up and make themselves ready for the diversification of the tech industry. Now, you know, fast forward three years after that, ran my coding bootcamp, taught about 450 people, mainly in the Oakland area, um, got the majority of them jobs in the industry. So did my small part in diversifying. The industry still needed to, to as a whole, tech industry still did make tons of progress. So um, I sold my company to another coding bootcamp and became director of diversity and inclusion. And the way that I thought about it was, you know, I could scale my impact. This built this small school, sell it to another school, scale my impact across the nation and start to get more underrepresented folks in Texas, New York. Um, I think that we were also in Atlanta at the time um, into coding boot camps. Um, so I did that for about a year set up the 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 um that part of our business for success and then um still wanted to make more impact so what i decided to do was pivot into a tech company i wanted to learn about how tech companies were um fostering uh diversity equity and inclusion within their own walls um you know this was i guess four years into my career now in tech and um, i still didn't see much progress especially for black folks the numbers were still almost exactly the same from that first diversity report that Google dropped. Um, and I, I felt like if I could just learn about what companies have worked for VMware, um, huge company, huge tech company, legacy tech company, if I could just learn about the things that they were doing and correct those, um, maybe those numbers would change across the industry. Um, but what I found was uh, something very different. The fact that there's a reason why these numbers have not moved. And the reason is because the what's entrenched in these companies um, and the culture and the way that they do business, the way they approach things um, is hard to change. In fact, nigh impossible to change um, because the momentum that got to them to where they are, are is the kind of the uh, antithesis to building a culture that, that prioritizes diversity, equity, and inclusion. For example, VMware, great company, great people, not to say anyone was not good, but everyone was great. But we focused on recruiting exclusively from like MIT. MIT doesn't have a lot of black people. So, you know, going into a room and saying, hey, maybe we should, uh, uh, maybe we should um, divert our efforts away from recruiting from MIT um, was, a, it was taboo. It was, it was something that we had never thought of doing before um, and that we would never do because we built this relationship and this is how we know how to get talent and this is what we're focused on. And then when you say, but what about the demographics of MIT? Well, it's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, we can't really sacrifice our relationship for demographics. That's the very problem, right? That, that's the, that, that's... You're literally telling me exactly why this will never work. So I ended up deciding to go to a smaller company. I said, if I could start building diversity into these companies from the beginning, closer to the beginning, maybe I'll be able to affect the trajectory of these of companies um, uh, as, as they're scaling to the size of the VMware. So I went to DocuSign, 1,800 employees at the time, doubling in size, hyper growth, very, very ready to, you know, diversify and good experience, much better experience, but also similar problem. DocuSign heavily recruited from um, Seattle University. Great program. They had started embedding themselves in that program very, very early, uh, about, uh, I think, eight years prior. So they had a very strong relationship. Demographics of Seattle University is not very good. 
the folks who are now working on the sales side and engineering side who came from Seattle University also are now only referring people from their networks, which also happen to be folks who are not very diverse. Um, I materially changed that uh, by helping us go to different schools in the Seattle area and the San Francisco area. But to see that change happen would take years, years, the same amount of years that DocuSign was, uh, was, um, was in business, um, about eight years would have, I did the math said in order for us to get to the diversity numbers that we want to hit, it'll probably take around the same amount of time. So after about a year there, I decided I wanted to go to the smallest company that I could go to so that I could affect this from the beginning. And I went to Airtable. Table was about 150 employees, which, you know, was probably as close to the ground floor that you're going to get to being able to embed diversity and inclusion to a company. Now Airtable is, I believe, 1,500 employees, so 10x. And this is a testament to how the work can be done because Airtable is a very diverse company, both from experience, school, background, and it's because from the beginning, we invested in partnerships and technology that gave us access to wide pools of talent. Um, and we didn't bias ourselves as much as we could toward talent that was from a very specific company or school. And that allowed us to keep our options open and um, allowed us to educate hiring managers on how we could better, um, how they could. Um, um, for lack of a better word, um, leverage the fact that we weren't super specific to lower their cost of acquiring candidates. The fact of the matter is, is that the more places that you have to, do, to hire from, the lower the cost and time it takes for you to find a candidate. If all I do is go to MIT and Stanford, I'm competing with everyone going to MIT and Stanford. I'm spending a lot of money investing in the MIT and Stanfords, right? But I'm neglecting all the places where I could have an advantage. If I were to build a business today, I wouldn't go to the, uh, into the most competitive industry where there are incumbents and um, you know several businesses that are trying to go for the same customers. I'd go for a place that actually is barren, that is new, that doesn't have a ton of um, that doesn't have a ton of uh, competitors so that I could get my competitive advantage. And that's what, how we wanted to position diversity work at Airtable, and it ended up working. Um, so now, pivoting to Junko, um, I, I kind of, I, I, my I, impact at Airtable reached, and my learning reached its limits. Um, I worked with enough recruiters and enough hiring managers to understand what their challenges were. And what I wanted to do was, my, my goal is to, um, was to work for a company that was uh, working with several customers focused on this very problem, which was how do you use technology to get to large pools of underrepresented talent? And thankfully, Junko, that's what we do. We connect um, our customers with can underrepresented candidates that have recently ended an interview process with a another customer. So for example, say I interview at IBM and get to the final round, but I don't get the job. Instead of rejecting me, IBM refers me to Junko, and then Junko matches me with customers who want to hire me. And the customers on the other end know that I'm a Junko candidate, so they fast-track me through the process. Um, so in this role, my job is to ed both educate the market and educate uh, our customers on how they can leverage our technology to get to, to add additional power to their already foundational diversity goals. If you're going to conferences, if you are um, using the, you know, leveraging the Rooney rule, um, if you're doing, if you are, you know, asking your ERGs for referrals, those are all great things. But those are all great things from 10 years ago. And if you want to get an edge on what every other company is doing, you got to start looking to leverage technology to find underrepresented talent faster and to learn about how you can make sure that your hiring process is both fair and interesting to them. So that's what we do with the company. And that's why I'm there. That was 10 minutes. by the way. I love it. You're a great podcast guest. Cause you just be gone. 
And it's always <laughs> it's always educational and informational. You know, you said a few things there because we're going to get to Junko in a second. Believe that. Uh, before that, though, you know, as we as we talk about tech, right? I think about like about two three years ago, you know, in, in the murder of George Floyd, with all these commitments to DEI, all these things going on around how we love the blacks, we love queer folks, we love uh, disabled people, we love Latinx folks, we love. We, we're, we're here for it. And, you know, all the book signings and readings and all the things were going on and like high, 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 high demand. And then like around Q3, Q4 of last year, we start seeing layoffs and we're starting and we started to see uh, and we're, we're continuing to see a disproportionate amount or um, rather seeing black and brown folks being disparately impacted by these layoff decisions. And it's kind of like a monkey see monkey do thing, right? Like we got seven, it's this, the common range is anywhere from seven to 14%. We're seeing some jump out there, like, you know, maybe 15 plus percent at a time. Um, I'm curious, one, what do you make of these layoffs? And um, from my perspective, how, how they highlight, how disposable uh, the how tech and just frankly corporate America sees black and brown talent, but then also like tying that back to Junco, like how, what is the implication for platforms like like the like at the brand you work at that are really focused on helping talent find find the right place to work? That's a great question, and you know we see it too, right? Like uh, to to your first point about layoffs affecting. Black and brown folks disproportionately. We actually did a looked at took a, a layoff list of twelve thousand people and ran it through our both our recommendation algorithm and our demographic algorithm, which basically has like a ninety five percent chance of being able to tell you whether someone's underrepresented or not. Seventy eight percent of the folks who've been uh, laid off so far are from an underrepresented background. So that, that's that's pretty crazy, right? That's and insane. No one, is talking about it as much as we're talking about generative AI and chat GPT and all these companies needing to restructure to get to uh, profitability. So, you know, what your, your, um, uh, uh, the evidence that you're observing, the things that you're observing definitely shows up in the numbers. And to your point, you know, it wasn't just two years ago that, you know, Democrats were on one knee in Kinte Claw. And, you know, I, I think the, the cognitive dissonance between George Floyd and what we're going through now is quite telling about what companies will do to prioritize what they think people feel matters at the moment. Two years ago, it was racial equity. It was social justice. Um, and companies went hard, you know. Uh, and right now, it's how can we get to the money as quickly as possible? Um, and that happens to be, um, you know, disposing of a lot of the investments and the efforts that we made over the last two years that aren't, quote unquote, turning a profit right this second. And that happens to be very, you know, in line with diversity and inclusion efforts, hiring black folks who are typically in, not typically, but, you know, more proportionally in roles that are people related, um, sales related. Which are also getting cut. If you look at if you look at just like demographically where the cuts are being made, and have just newly started at these companies within two years. And when you think about when companies think about layoffs, they think about you know last in first out, life up. So these it it, it makes sense from a from uh, an, a CHRO perspective why these cuts are being made without any thought to the diversity lens because they're just thinking about business unit who's been here long enough uh, uh, who's been here for a long time and who's going to and how can we keep as much engineering ten talent as possible black folks make up about three percent of engineers especially in silicon valley so we might not be getting cut at that three percent uh clip but every, folks in other business units are taking the heat um, so, you know, I, I, I definitely think that there's a, that, that companies are showing who they truly are and they can't help it. Um, and it's going to come back to bite them in the butt, um, once this talent is needed again, it's going to be hard to build back that trust, um, with black and brown folks and diversity leaders. I mean, man, I, I, 
I talk to diversity leaders, you know, once a week that are trying to get out because they see that this, the things that they've been working out, putting blood, sweat, and tears in the last three years are just getting cut overnight. Um, so I think we're going to see a little bit of a reckoning once things turn back up, uh, when and if they turn back up, um, uh, where folks are going to, you know, really second guess whether a company actually uh, cares about this stuff. Um, on the Junko side, we are, you know, I, I think that we're in a really unique position. We're a recruiting platform. And when recruiting isn't happening, um, it's hard for us to justify our value. So we're fighting the same fight, not only from the diversity perspective, but from the, you know, a lot of the companies that are, were, are our customers with, their, with us are um, um, technology companies. So there are two things that we're doing to make sure that we show value. First and foremost, um, we are positioning ourselves at, to technology companies who happen to be cutting their diversity and recruiting teams. We are a tool that can still supplement your diversity efforts um, by giving you awesome underrepresented candidates. Um, while you're cutting your teams in half, don't take a hit on the um, potential diversity that you can be building into your company. Use tools and platforms that will allow you to continue to source that talent without you um, with less resources. And this is not a, you know, this is not me putting up a billboard about, you know, replacing jobs at the end of the day. That's not what we're in the business of doing um, with, with our platform. But the reality is that companies are cutting their headcount and recruiting. And those recruiting teams still need to take diversity seriously. So how do they do that? They got to use platforms. And we're one of the ones that will help them. The second thing that we're seeing, oh, go ahead. The second thing that we're seeing from a macro perspective is that while, you know, the tech contagion is definitely the number one on the headlines and finance companies are now feeling it too. There are several industries that are still growing. Services industries, health tech, uh, obviously climate is huge right now. Um, so, and then mid-sized companies, companies that you know recently raised money and are starting to use this opportunity to grow while larger companies are contracting. So we see this as a, the great tech talent transfer. How can we transfer a lot of this talent um, that's being cut as quickly as possible to companies who are in dire need to grow? Um, so still a tight labor market. Um, you know, I recently, I mean, this morning I read uh, a LinkedIn a post that said we have the lowest unemployment and the highest layoff rate ever. So we, we have this this two forces moving at once and you can't. Um, talk about supply without demand and you can't talk about demand without supply. So there's tons of demand. We're getting to the folks who have demand and matching them with the folks who have supply uh, and making sure that we are, do our part in transferring this talent to uh, companies who both care about them and need their talent. So I'll stop there. No. So one, I appreciate you. You know, it's interesting. I have two questions. I'm gonna t We're going to talk about Junko because uh, I want to do a little fourth wall break in there. Um, but before that, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you talk about your journey uh, going back to the top of this conversation. You talk about your journey and getting into tech and, and leveraging coding boot camps and really mm -hmm. that continuing to be a way, right, that historically marginalized folks, uh, economically disadvantaged or exploited folks um, have begun to build that skill set to get into tech. Um, from the beginning, like and I didn't say this a lot out loud because I didn't want. I don't know. I didn't want to come across like hyper pessimistic. My concern about like my constant concern about those boot camps, not that you like co understanding those like those that level of coding is is great and it's a great entry. Everyone needs an entry point, so I'm not sh I'm not shunning or shaming the entry point. My concern was if you learn that and you just stay there, that eventually you're going to be replaced by an API by some sort of some sort of tool or or application. Um, I'm curious to get your perspective to the idea that like, you know, one one before the open AI and chat GPT, I mean, we're already doing like natural language processes, but I think 
ChatGPT has helped really scale a lot of these things that people have been building and working on for a while. Um, I'm curious to get your reaction to the idea that coders at that level are going to be the equivalent of like fast food workers in about five to seven years. Like that, that is that that is going to be the new lowest tier of of technical skill. I'm curious to see, like, do you think that's, do you think that's valid or do you think, or do you think that's an oversimplification? I think that there's, there's a world in which that's true. Um, and I, I want to maybe adjust the analogy a little bit and um, then maybe we'll be closer to agreeing. I'd say that it's more like mechanics. So coders are the mechanic mechanics of the web. They make they put the tools together to make sure that information can scale across the internet in a way that makes sense to us humans, right? From the back end to the front end, that's all we do. Um, and I think that there was a time, I think it was like the seventies, where everyone went to trade school and everyone wanted to become an electrician because you could make like seventy thousand dollars coming out of an apprenticeship, and there were too many electricians. And that devalued the number of electricians that, um, or the, 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 the price of an electrician due to supply and demand. The reason why I bring up that example is because the same thing, the reason why I was able to go to a coding boot camp and have some success despite being a mediocre person is because there was a huge, there was huge demand in 2012 for software engineers. Every company startup and every mid-sized company was trying to build a SaaS platform. This was like right when Salesforce hit. And it was like, everyone was like, we need to build a SaaS platform. And, and learning React and JavaScript in the browser was a skill that no legacy software engineers had. So the supply gap versus the demand need was huge, which opened up the, 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 uh, opened up the a space for coding boot camps to have tons of success. If I can get you someone who can at least put together a web page for you, will you give? Will you pay them to learn enough to give you a chance to up their skills over over time in this kind of trade? Right? I don't. You don't need a four year degree. You don't need computational science. You don't need any of that. I just need you to build something for me. That was a new demand. So the the to your fast forward to your question about uh, wh- how automation is going to affect the software engineering market, they we're in a very different. The coding boot camps are struggling now because we're in a very different time. Companies don't need anymore uh, from ten years ago. Don't need junior software engineers. They need senior software engineers. They need folks who know how to manage architectural uh, uh, migrations, architectural evolutions in the product, building net new features that use new technologies. And junior software engineers now are being devalued at the end of the day. So, and they're being devalued by two things, one, a need, and two, the software now is advanced enough to replace them. So I think to your point, five to seven years, it is going to be much harder to become a, to, to be incentivized as a junior software engineer to become a senior software engineer because companies can use automation to do all of their basic QA tasks, um, uh, uh, building uh, scripts that allow infrastructure within your, um, within your, um, application to talk to each other, um, SQL queries, all these things that you do as a junior software engineer, just to like learn how software works within a production environment. All that's going to be automated away. And then it's going to, it's going to be on, you know, students and folks who are new in the industry to learn, uh, the technologies that AI can't do, which are more actually the soft skills, of software engineering, really determining determining why we're building a product anyway, um, figuring out the fastest way to mock up an MVP of a feature and test it on a data set, um, and then use takeaways to improve that over time. I don't think that automation and AI are going to be able to um, have engineering discernment, if you will, 
uh, within five to seven years. So I think to long story short, the, the skills that are necessary now will be devalued. Um, the skills that are, will become necessary will be highly valued. And those are more of the meta and, um, soft engineering skills that, um, that, uh, help you that help software engineers understand what are they building? Why are they building? And how can I use automation to build it for me very quickly so I can move on to the next task? Yo, uh, before we go, we're going to talk about Junko. It's funny, right? Because I had you on, we talked about this, had you on the show. It was great. And then it was funny because as you know, Living Corp has been around for about five years. So right, since 2018. So like, so like we've had, we have like a thousand, over a thousand podcasts, right? Over across our network. Oh, you know, over, over like 2 million downloads where like we've grown, exp- like that's ramped up a lot, like the past, like 18 months. But, you know, it's funny. I was telling, I was talking to people about, Informally, I was talking to people about living corporate and everything. And before I published our last interview, people were like, who did you like? They were like, um, Zach, uh, what are you trying to like? What what brands are you talking to as it pertains to hiring platforms and things of that nature? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I've interviewed Porter Braswell, the job. Well, I've interviewed, you know, so and so and LinkedIn. I've interviewed so and so, you know, it's like like on and on and on. And like unsolicited, they'd say. Hey, look. Junko, inauthentic, um, not really understanding what they got going on over there. Very white, um, very, feels very exploitative. And I had, and I'm not going to say the people's names for sure, but like I had black women specifically that I very much so trust and frankly adore. They would share these things with me. And I remember you and I came back and we talked offline about like, hey, look, I want to re-record the interview. I want to be honest. Living corporate is about real talk in a corporate world. You're my man. So I feel like I should, I should have enough respect and trust for you where we can have this conversation, not only offline, but also to talk about Junko's journey, where you came into that and like your perspective on where the brand is going. Yeah, 100%. And I, first and foremost, I want to thank um, whomever gave you that feedback for giving that authentic feedback because at the end of the day, um, it's our job to be able to take that feedback and come more authentic if that's not what the market is thinking. Um, so I'll just start with like 30 seconds on where, what we do and how we came to do what we do. And then, you know, talk through some of the challenges of, uh, challenges of our company, um, how it was brought to market and what we're, you know, how we're evolving. So Junko, I'll just keep it real is in company based in Israel. Um, it's a company based in Israel, led by founder, her name is Elite Raz, who very much so, being in the Israeli army, being a technical founder, has come up against much of the things that we call in the US as diversity and inclusion challenges, being excluded from the industry because of her um, gender at the end of the day. And it's exacerbated in Israel. Um, Israel's pretty far back in terms of how they think about gender dynamics, especially in the workplace. Um, and that's what led Elite to found a company that was built on the principles of diversity and inclusion. The way that that's been described, uh, or the, the first iteration of Junko, was to use natural language processing and machine learning to um, sit in your Slack channels, to sit in your emails, to tell you when language or decisions have been made in a biased way. Um, and to kind of use keywords, uh, much like Textio, like a live Textio, to tell you when you know bias is, is getting in the way of, of things. Um, and in 2020, um, you know, while the business, while the idea was great, companies weren't very keen to call out their own biases in real time to use the technology to do that. So we pivoted to a recruitment platform and that was focused on using the same natural language processing and the same machine learning to connect underrepresented talent uh, candidates with jobs. Um, Along the way, there has definitely been 
some missteps and they, they um, come in the, in the sense and what, what, what could be called as inauthentic, the way that we've described our candidate pool, the way that we talk about, um, we talked about diversity and inclusion needed improvement. Um, and it really came as just like a cultural divide. The way that uh, diversity is described in Israel is different than the, is not as advanced as how we describe it in the United States. And as a company that sells directly to um, and only exclusively to U.S. companies, you can see how that um, language gap and that understanding gap could come off as inauthenticity, especially if you're just reading our website. So what we've done is um, we've started a, a U.S. office, a New York office, um, and we, in that office, we are uh, sourcing and recruiting folks who, one, come from a background that um, where part of their job has been um, in diversity and inclusion. Two, their personal uh, background um, has uh, given them an understanding of what diversity and inclusion looks like um, in a workplace. And three, uh, we want to make sure that we're putting them in roles that uh, leadership roles to um, lead departments um, so that they can both identify with they can identify with leaders um, from underrepresented backgrounds and build their own network. So uh, that that over the last three years, we've definitely had an evolution in our company, both from a marketing perspective, um, from a technology perspective, what we do, and from a cultural perspective. And I think, you know, the folks who gave us feedback, you haven't recently spoken with um, spoken with us and talked to us about what we do and how we do it, I would challenge you to do so. And if you still come away with the same um, feedback, then that's good for us to hear. And that's good for us to understand so that we can figure out how we can evolve and continuously evolve to meet the market in a way that's more authentic. You know, um, the last thing I want to talk about, first of all, I appreciate the answer. You know, I, I think my overarching, my, my constant concern, right? And this is this is just about like just all of this work, right? So living corporate in general, uh, but then but but other brands too, like it's interesting, like brands will come on to these similar spaces. And I wouldn't say that living corporate has a ton of similar spaces, but um, we'll come on and like give a lot of dog and pony show. And then you turn around and like, they've laid off like 50% of their black and brown people or 70% of their black and brown people. I mean, like we've literally had a brand that was like, we had their CEO on living corporate talking, talking the hottest, the hottest of shit. Okay. Talking that, talking that talk, AB, like, nah, we're, we're, well, I'm, I'm Mr. We used Diversity. to be kings. <laughs> they were talking only for like fast forward, like 18 months later, like 70% of their black and brown people are gone. I went up, man, we went on living corporate. I said, yo, delete, <laughs> remove. But like <laughs> a whole page of like brands that we're proud to have on and like, yo, check out their interview. I was like, I kept on, we kept on getting emails and phone calls. I was like, oh no, nah, I gotta, I hit up answer Aaron, take it down. Blue, remove, <laughs> archive, take it down. Uh, so, so anyway, it's just about, for me, it's all about integrity and honesty. Like, um, now last question I ask you, it's also a conversation we had offline. We're in this season, like think of, when you think about our journey and our, our, our history at this, in this country and by our, I mean, just the diaspora, um, and this country has not been in terms of really, first of all, I could argue that we're not free right now, but in terms of like having all of our civil rights on paper, um, and again, I could make an argument there too. But the point is, most of our civil rights on paper, like for the past like fifty years or so, like my mom was born without all of her civil rights, and she, you know, and so, uh, I'm, our journey in the and during this season right here is has not been that long. Like we don't have multiple, multiple, multiple generations of like corporate leaders or you know senior executives and things of that nature. And so for a lot of black black folks, uh black and brown people, but certainly black people specifically, this is our first time really stepping into opportunities where we're making two, three, four hundred plus thousand dollars in our careers, like for quote unquote high performing black people, entrepreneurs included. I'm curious, like, I'd love to kind of for you to re reshare some of the conversation you and I had offline about 
like for the black folks who are, you know, 10 plus years of their career, they're stepping into new opportunities where they can really make some significant money. Like share more, share more about the discussion you and I had offline regarding how to think through your role and what to ask for in negotiation and all that stuff. That was a really dope conversation. I just wanted you to share a little nugget of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that up. I love talking about negotiation. Um, and I, I love talking about, uh, personal finance and well-being and how to mix those two. And I think there there are a couple of, there are like three pillars that I think about when it comes to um, my own personal, the the decisions and discussions that I've made when it, to get to the place financially where I feel both comfortable and confident in my future. And the first one is having, establishing my own, my own measure of how much my time is worth and stand, standing on that. So Naval, who I'm very torn about, he's a, you know, tech thinker. He's like technocrat. Everyone loves Naval, but what, what he says on uh, on Twitter, investor, prolific investor, crypto guy. But one thing that he said that um, I, I have started to live by was act as if, do things as if your time was worth $5,000 an hour. And the that has been a guiding principle that has both helped me, helped me negotiate in my position and my, how, my pay. And the combination of those two things should add up to whatever I think my personal per hour cost is. Mine is, let's say, $1,000. Um, and the way that that manifests itself is when I go into a conversation with a company I'm thinking about, or really an opportunity, I'm thinking about a couple of things. Um, is this paying me enough to where I don't have to worry about anything but getting the job done. Is this paying me enough so that two years from now, I don't have to think about anything except for getting the job done? Is this putting me in a position to work on things that will in two, in three to five years, increase my income enough to where I don't have to worry about anything but getting the job done? And then three, if those things aren't true, what can I add to the negotiation mix to make sure that I have exactly what I need to make number one or number two true? And I think going into negotiation and, and thinking about your own personal wealth in that matter, in that manner, is somewhat the opposite of what I've heard people uh, uh, discuss negotiations. Like they're thinking about the salary that they need to make today to be comfortable. But inflation is at 10%, bro. It's at 6%. What about next year? What about next year? What about the following year? What about when you want to start a family? What about when you want to buy that next house? Think about what you want to be making two years down the line so that you aren't disappointed if you go into a tough economic environment next year and your company can't give you a raise. You should just feel like you're chilling. The second piece is is this putting me in a position to get to that three to five year goal? That materially impacts what you might be, what you might, the, the lower band of what you might uh, want to go for. For example, this position allows me as VP of strategy, allows me to study the market of technology tools that are helping companies recruit. That's literally my job. I translate that down to our sales team, our marketing team, our founder, and we turn that into actionable things that allow us to become a better business. That resume allows me to start a company in two years, which materially impacts, if I do it well, the wealth that I can accumulate tenfold based off of what my salary is now. So I'm okay if I don't get the extra 10K that I asked for, because I know that the skills and the opportunity is worth way more that more than that. And if those, those two things weren't, weren't true, I would have asked for something very different so that I could uh, be patient enough to um, find an opportunity or get the opportunity that allows, number one, 
which is what am I going to be making in two years? And number two, how does this set me up in three to five years to be true? So that's a little bit of the conversation that we had. I know that there were layers to it, um, but that that's the gist of my philosophy on, you know, asking for what you need and thinking about your career. I love it. Look, um, Aubrey, we, you know, you and I could talk forever. Um, I really appreciate the time. Um, I, I love I love the fact that you've been in a space long enough to really have like a panoramic view and be able to speak about it, like with some level of, of history and depth. Um, and honestly, I'm, I appreciate you just dropping jewels as you always do. I'm blessed uh, to know you as a, as, as a, as an individual, as a man, as a person, as a leader, as a colleague. And so I just, uh, I appreciate you, man. You're a friend of the show. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, thank you, Zach, for having me on the show. Uh, you are also a friend. I'm excited to uh, hear when this goes up. And uh, thank you again. Appreciate it. And we're back. Yo, um, again, shout out to Aubrey. Shout out to Junko. I appreciate all the work uh, that you're doing. Excited about the future of this space and this work. Excited about black folks really taking their power by owning their story and thinking beyond an immediate bag or an immediate title or immediate whatever, right? Consider and continue to consider how you can honor your values and your purpose by doing the work that honors, honors your, honors who you are. Okay. I love y'all. We'll talk to y'all soon. Peace. elevation post-production is handled by jeremy jackson got a topic suggestion email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com you can find us online on twitter facebook instagram and living-corporate.com thanks for listening stay tuned